I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. It would be hard to overstate the importance of early mentoring in STEM fields. The most well-known STEM jobs, like doctor and research professor, can seem intimidating to some students, even when they have an aptitude for STEM. It's therefore very important for young students to get a more realistic idea of the full spectrum of STEM jobs that are available. It's also important for underrepresented groups or students from underserved communities to be able to see people like themselves have successful STEM careers. To that end, let's meet a couple of STEM ambassadors from Charles River who spend their off hours volunteering to bring STEM to students. Elaine Duncan and Alan McCouvere are scientists who work in integrated biology at our Saffron Walden site. They are both involved in the UK's STEM Ambassador Program, which connects volunteer scientists with classes to develop science activities for the kids. Welcome, Elaine and Alan. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for being here. So first off, can you both give a rundown of how you came to choose science as a career? Alan, you want to start first? Um, Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, So basically, I was fortunate enough to grow up in Zimbabwe and the UK and during that time, I've kind of witnessed the spectrum of life on the other side. Um, so in Zimbabwe, you get children dying from easily curable diseases. Over here in the UK, you have free healthcare. Um, so from that point onwards, I was always fascinated with science and knowing how cures and medicines work in order to kind of help people help alleviate some of those issues and those problems first. And I now found myself here doing exactly that. When did you go to the UK? Was it for Um, school? Yeah, so me and my family migrated here in 2005 uh, when I was nine years old. So, yeah, so half of my life was spent in Zimbabwe and half of my life has been spent here in the UK. Uh, Elaine, how about you? How did you get started in STEM? So I, I guess maybe had a bit of a, a different background and just that I was always really interested in doing fun science things. So, you know, the sort of putting your Coke, it, it, putting mental sweets into bottles of Coca-Cola and getting the rockets and things like that. <laughs> and I was just generally really curious about things. And I was really fortunate to have parents and, and family and teachers who all encouraged and really supported that. So I guess through school, I if someone was like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer was always something science-y, but I didn't really know what within there. And I guess what might be similar to Alan's story is that I was also really driven to to help people, but I did work experience in a hospital and absolutely hated it. I remember I watched a patient get bone marrow taken and I nearly fainted and the patient was asking me if I was okay. And I think oh, that, no. was, that was the end of my medical career. <laughs> so I did a, a very general undergraduate degree that was just in natural sciences that gradually got more specialized. And my first job as a graduate was at Charles River. And that's where I've been ever since. <laughs> you know, I've heard I've heard this a lot from different scientists. Um, who they, you know, they, they thought they maybe wanted to be a doctor and they always had an interest in biology. But then when they got to the actual treating patients, they either, you know, had too much empathy or, you know, didn't like the sight of blood or whatever it was. And then they kind of had to do a pivot. 
Uh, did so, Alan? Did you kind of experience that as well? Um, not really. I think I was kind of lucky that I I knew what I wanted to do from a very young age, because um, and because of my biology teacher, Miss Garvey, she really made biology interesting, mm-hmm. and um, she always nurtured my my talents and my interests, and she also gave me the the magazine, the New Scientist. And it was then that I actually discovered what pharmacology was because I read, uh, I stumbled upon a chapter and it was talking about the drug tamoxifen and how it cures breast cancer. So I was Mm -hmm. like, wow, this is the mechanism of how drugs actually work. And from that point onwards, I started writing my personal statements into to go and study pharmacology at university. Uh, where I did my uh, undergrad in pharmacology at Nottingham Trent University. And then uh, I actually was like, this is not enough. And I went on to the University of Nottingham to actually do a master's in drug discovery and pharmaceutical sciences. And I just learned much more about the processes behind drug discovery. So I was fortunate that I've always had supportive parents and supportive teachers who've just guided me and led me on this path, really, which I'm actually passionate about. Yeah, I mean, that kind of leads perfectly to my next question, which is explaining the importance of mentors and, and role models in your career. So for you, that was your parents and Miss Garvey and other teachers? Uh, yeah, very yeah, very much. Everybody who I've encountered has been a mentor to me. I like to learn from everybody. I feel like there's always something mm-hmm. to be learned, but those are the people that have been pivotal in in what I have done. Uh, even some of my lecturers have actually inspired me to even further explore the things that I'm currently doing. And the more you learn, the more you discover that there's actually more things that need to be addressed within our fields. So I've, I've actually been mm-hmm. fortunate to be offered a PhD at Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine to actually focus on looking at novel therapeutics in uh, poor and middle-income countries to like address issues such as malaria and TB. And that also stems from just having good people pointing you in the right direction and nurturing your, your talents. That, is that something you were um, just recently accepted uh, to? Yeah, so that was something that I got accepted into like last month. So that's uh, awesome. Thank Congrats. you very much. And that also <laughs> just stems from um, issues that you learn from from university about uh, the importance of diversity. So one of the areas which they focus on is in clinical trials. Uh, people from ethnic minority backgrounds are underrepresented within those populations. And you can also see that with the current situation with the vaccines, the compliance is low in those uh, populations as well. And that also stems from issues such as diversity. And uh, I'm the first scientist that most people encounter. So I feel like there's more people that need to learn more yeah. about science. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, we were probably going to get into this later, but why not bring it up now? It, 
science isn't just for people that might want a career in science. It's important to have a strong basis in science education because, like you said, it it affects your everyday life. So, I, can, you know, especially in a sort of current world situation we are where people want to know everything they can about vaccines, but without at least a, a some basis in science, it's really hard to explain those sort of concepts to people. It's very true. Can you explain... I'm just wondering what either of you think are the best qualities in a mentor. Is it just seeing them be successful in their job or is there some way they interact with, with you in a way that is inspiring? That's, I get, that's a really interesting question. I really liked what Alan had said about that almost everyone you encounter is someone that you can learn from. And although we kind of have pivotal people that we can point to as particular role models or mentors. I think what I've learned, and actually probably quite recently, like in the last year or so, is that although it's important to to have role models, and for me, when I was thinking about doing this podcast and, and asking, answering these kind of questions, I realized that anyone that I would count as a role model or mentor tend to be women. And I think for me, the importance of that, I hadn't even noticed it before, honestly, but yeah, yeah, it just meant that it was never weird for me to be a girl in science. There were always people there who had, who had done it first. So I think that's really important. But also what I've learned is that role models are brilliant and they can teach you things and you can find maybe aspects of their character that you want to emulate or... Or you're like, I, I really, I really like that they're so caring, or I really like how they run a meeting, and I want to be like that. But you shouldn't aim to to just mimic your role model and everything. They're a person too; they also have flaws. So I think what I've learned is to to take the aspects of lots of different role models and mentors that I like to kind of create this version of myself that has all of those traits (laughs) and then you become your own role model like you're trying to become the person that you see yourself as I don't know if I've explained that very well but no I like that I I I do like the fact that you've acknowledged that role models are people too and they're not no one's going to be perfect right exactly I I mean but maybe that's an important thing to see as well as a student because you know if you idolize doctors then it's going to be hard to imagine yourself as a doctor right it's kind of and also seeing, oh, that person does that. I I do that too. And and kind of making those links and just like I said, just having those people ahead of you that makes it not not a weird thing for me to be a girl in science. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Would you agree yeah, with that, Alan? And just to echo what Elaine just said, most of my role models in science have all been females. So like all all of my teachers basically <laughs> have been females from, <laughs> from really what I can remember. <laughs> Even now when I'm working in the company and it might be a little bit biased, but working in the in the EFIS department, I've um realized that like women are more attentive to your to nurturing your talents. So like Sarah and uh, Amy are always encouraging me and always asking me to do different things and always like, are you okay? And that reinforcement has been pivotal in my development during my time at uh, 
in the company as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's no, really absolutely. Interesting. I mean, if your if your mentor can be your boss, that's a that's a total win win because you know, talk about a learning curve. That that's a really great place to start. Yeah, that's very true. But and and just to add yeah. on, but then also like qualities that I would look for in a mentor. I think somebody who is patient. Like um, there's Scott at work. He's very patient and he's always approachable. (laughs) (laughs) You can ask him and Mm -hmm. have a generic conversation, anything from science and anything about football. And I think that's very important. That's very important, (laughs) being relatable to the people that you're mentoring as well in order to have that common ground so that you can even explore different areas that they might be struggling in. I think those are very important Mm -hmm. qualities to have. Elaine, can you explain how the STEM Ambassador Program works? Yeah, absolutely. So the STEM Ambassador Program in the UK is run by run by a group called STEM Learning UK. And effectively what it is, is a, is a database of volunteers who are from science, technology, engineering and maths industries. And the volunteers are effectively a resource for teachers to help bridge the gap between what's in a science curriculum at school versus what jobs in those sectors actually look like. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite, that is a missing link in a lot of science education, at least in my experience. Biology at school, although it was really interesting and I really loved it, it was sort of what can you remember from the textbook that you can then say in the exam. Mm -hmm. And actually, as a scientist, that's not what my job is. My job is to be creative and to troubleshoot and to say oh well that didn't work what am I going to do next time (laughs) to make it work um and it's and it's practical and that's something that there's usually practical aspects in science at school and obviously through university but it's Mm -hmm. always like maybe a small portion of the total grade or or total coursework whereas it's 80 percent of what I do on a day-to-day basis yeah. So teachers can approach STEM ambassadors to say, we need help with this topic. We are looking at this. Can you talk about how that relates to your work? Um, or sometimes even we're having a careers fair or can you do a Q&A with our class when we're talking about science careers? Or it can come from the STEM ambassadors who say, oh, I've got experience in this. Can I help you with something? So that's the, the foundation of the program. Can, Elaine, can you tell me what kind of activities you've created for the STEM Ambassador Program? Yeah, of course. So the STEM Ambassadors can do lots of things. Like I mentioned, sometimes it's as straightforward as going and giving a careers talk or just having a Q&A with students about what what your daily life in science looks like. But actually, one of the, the more fun things I find is doing practical activities And one of my biggest drivers has been to make the activities we do directly relatable to the drug discovery industry, because that was something that I didn't really know about until I worked in it. So one Mm -hmm. of the activities we've got is, um, it's a mock high throughput screen. So in early discovery, one of the first things we do as part of a drug discovery program is develop an assay, which is a, a kind of miniature experiment to measure the effect of a of a medically active compound potentially and we screen thousands and thousands of those 
through the same experiment to, to really just get a starting point of what our drug molecule might look like. We've developed a, a mini version for kids where we take a 96 well plate and we preload that with mostly table salt, sodium chloride, mm-hmm. and then we spike some wells with um, either citric acid, which is an acid, <laughs> and um, bicarbonate of soda, which is an alkali. We then make red cabbage indicator, which some people might have done at school or in their own kitchens. You, If you boil red cabbage, the liquid that you get afterwards is a pH indicator. So what we do is we get the, the kids from all ages, actually, we've got little tiny lab coats that five-year-olds can wear. Um, and they have these massive goggles and massive gloves and their parents love it and take loads of pictures. And then they throw purple liquid all over the place. What we actually get them to do is pipette this purple mm-hmm. liquid into all of the wells of a column of this 96-well plate. And obviously the wells that have acid or alkali in it will change colour. They'll go red if it's an acid or blue if it's an alkali. And we can explain, you, you've just found a hit. And then we can talk to them about what we do with that hit in order to get it to a a medicine that they could buy, like paracetamol mm-hmm. or something. So I, I love that activity. I think <laughs> it's a really great representation of what we do in, yeah. in our job in a way that's really accessible and also, everything's food safe, so it's really mm-hmm. easy to write the risk assessment. And we've not we've not really been very novel with it. it we didn't invent red cabbage indicator. <laughs> That's something that has been in existence for years. And all we've done is applied it in a slightly different situation that that makes it really relevant to the work that that we do on our daily basis. Alan, I understand that you are involved in another program that's geared toward kids in Africa. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes. So I am a mentor slash ambassador for the Africa Youth Arise Youth uh, Program. And we mainly focus on helping children or young people navigate the way through school. Because from my own ex- my own experience, being a second generation immigrant, um, what you realize is that my parents didn't know much about the education system here, because it was totally different to mm-hmm. to the one back home. So if I had uh, had people who were not supportive and motivated me and actually pointed me in the right direction towards doing the right A levels and the right, um, um, choosing the right university uh, choices, then who knows where mm-hmm. I would have end up, ended up. So that's the premise of the work that we do, basically uh, representing uh, those underrepresented communities and showing them that there's actually different fields and different areas where you can actually venture into as young people from those backgrounds uh, and also just aiding young people and helping nature their skills and their talents and directing them in the right pathways, whether it's uh, working with my friends that are in HR, because some young people are Mm -hmm. passionate about HR, creating that network so that they have that link and so that they see that this is what actually happens in the daily 
life of somebody who works in HR, works in science, who works in the uh, financial sector. So, and that's one of the premise of the work that we do. Do you know how many countries um, Africa Youth Arise covers? Um, so the program recently started eight years ago. And um, mm-hmm. we normally just target quite a few young people in this uh, community, but it's welcome to, everybody's welcome to join. Uh, currently, we are working with uh, 140 young people. And that number nice. is just going to grow as we gain more exposure and as we as the program develops itself. Yeah, it it really sounds like a fantastic program because like no one should be should feel intimidated from any job just due to paperwork or bureaucracy. You know, having someone there to help you figure out what classes to take, what forms to fill out, all that sort of mundane stuff that can seem staggering when you're starting from scratch yeah so yeah that that seems like a really fantastic way to go about it and that's very that's very true because some of the times you find that some of the teachers um kind of diminish people's uh aspirations not by virtue by just the lack of patience so i've had friends in Mm -hmm, situations mm -hmm. who wanted to go and do science but they've been discouraged and been told that you have to go and do a, a B-Tech. And eventually they mm-hmm. never follow or pursue what they actually wanted to do. So actually just trying to help and bridge that gap and actually just being there and acting as as a role model for the next generation of young people can actually help them put them in a better place. Absolutely. And I think that kind of goes back with the activity that Elaine was describing, because, you know, like you said, when you're young and in school, it can seem like science is all just like grappling with these big, difficult problems and writing textbooks, when in fact, 90% of your day at some jobs might be using a pipette, which is a skill that most people can, can handle. Right, exactly. And I think we've had some really good examples recently of people that have, um, joined our company with no science background and they're Mm -hmm. doing work with cells and it's they're great at it because actually a lot of it is is process driven um and I I don't want to put off people that are good at remembering (laughs) things because obviously there are certain elements of needing to know like the real basics of science yeah the foundation has to be there yeah of course and um uh, people that can remember things I'm to be honest, not not great at remembering like little details and facts. Mm-hmm. But what we don't want to do is is tell young people that oh, because they don't have one or two of those particular skills, then nothing they have is valuable, which right. is absolutely not the case. <laughs> totally. So, Alan, why is it important for kids from underserved communities to have STEM role models in particular? We've kind of talked about this, you know. It, being able to see yourself in the role is important, but like why specifically is it important for underserved communities? Um, yeah, so yeah. it's very important to be to be represented when people are making decisions. And that's one of the important issues surrounding diversity because um, that can be interlinked to multiple layers. So for example, my favorite example right now is 
the compliance with vaccines in in those underserved communities. But mm-hmm. you might ask yourself the question: Why are people not taking the vaccines in in Black and uh, Asian communities? And then you have to look at it historically, because um, mm-hmm. it, during the nineteen thirties, um, the CDC and the Public Health Service um, did a clinical trial uh, in Tuskegee. I hope I said that right. Where mm-hmm. where yep. they had um, six hundred uh, black males from the sharecroppers, and they had uh, syphilis. But they told them mm-hmm. they would treat them, but they never treated them. And that that clinical trial was unethical and went on for forty years. And it was yep. only re, it was only uh, discovered once somebody went and shared that information. So, as you can already see, that um, individuals from those backgrounds are already skeptical about science. So as a scientist, it's our duty to try and rectify some of those issues and actually say things have moved on and actually the area is more diverse now and there's people who look like me who are actually doing this type of work that actually affects us and those decisions are shared and my my voice is heard when when those decisions are also made and that's very important in uplifting the next generation as well, because they look to you and think, okay, they identify problems and they also want to fix those problems. So mm-hmm. that's just one. That's just one example. So I believe as scientists, we have to address the the mistakes of our history and also try and address them going forward. Yeah, I, I mean, you bring up good points about how there's, you know, justified. Uh, in some cases, lack of trust and how it's important for doctors and teachers and, you know, people in those sorts of places of authority to acknowledge the realities of, you know, things that have happened, not even in the distant past. I think the Tuskegee experiment was going on until the 1970s. So, I mean, not that long ago. Um, And that, you know, that has affected entire generations of people and their trust in you know, drugs and and medical professionals. I think, again, there's also the argument for, like Alan said, actually addressing them. I think we have quite a bad habit as scientists of being, oh, well, it's not like that now. Yeah. (laughs) And actually, that that doesn't do very much. Yeah. Um, But it was like that. That's the point. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, I remember that... um, my grandparents actually, when I went into science, were really worried that that they knew someone that had got really sick back in the days of mouth pipetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, we don't we don't do that any. We use <laughs> Gilson pipettes, and and it, we're not. I don't know doing science with straws. <laughs> um, yeah, but that was still a real valid concern from them because of their experience. Again not that long ago so i think mm-hmm. yeah it's it's really important to to actually like acknowledge and address and not just brush those issues to the side yeah absolutely you got to show the work that you've done i mean that's something that scientists should definitely know to understand you've got to show your data you yeah. got to show that you've yeah. put in the effort yep <laughs> 
So what advice do you both have for kids of any age who are interested in a career in STEM? Elaine, do you want to go first? I can go. Yeah, I can, I'll go. <laughs> Sorry, you can cut that bit. <laughs> um, no, it's all gold. We're leaving it all in. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have an outtake reel. Um, <laughs> I think I'd just say get involved. It's sounds so silly. I think Alan mentioned a really good example earlier about there's just so much material out there. If you're if you're a reader, there's bookshops have sections on popular science. There's mm-hmm. magazines like the New Scientist. Um, I feel like Scientific American is an American equivalent. Um, mm-hmm. Then TV shows. I I'm really bad at keeping up to date, but things like. In the UK, Brainiac was a big deal when I was growing up and they do all that cool science. It doesn't really feel like science. It feels really silly when you watch it, but it mm-hmm. but it is real science and it's important. And so just, yeah, finding those things to get interested in and, and then talk to people. You, If you're fortunate enough to have other scientists in your network, whether that's parents or friends or friends of parents or distant relatives, I think as well as being interested yourself, having someone to share that with is really important. Even even your yeah. teachers. Um, what about you, Alan? Yeah. What advice would you give for kids? I mean, you give advice to kids all the time. <laughs> so what do you tell them? Uh, I tell them <laughs> to just follow their passion, you know, whatever it might be that they decide mm-hmm. to do, just make sure you're good at it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, obviously there's a whole plethora of stuff out there now that we didn't have access to when we were trying to navigate this this world of science. Um, there's YouTube mm-hmm. YouTube channels nowadays with a, a lot of educational content, um, podcasts like this as well. Um, and I think that's a very important point because just having conversations like this and being able to articulate science in layman's terms is very important. Um, mm-hmm. um, magazines, um, like Instagram pages, like that, that just <laughs> with yeah. a lot of Instagram content and about science. So yeah, just being curious and actually going out there and trying to find find things for yourself, and also trying to go into your uh, school school counselors and school guidance counselors, if they still have those, uh, <laughs> they could also be very helpful. TikTok, there's loads of TikTok science. I don't have TikTok, but it, it is a thing. <laughs> Do you have any recommendations, uh, Alan? No, but that's an area that I'm actually going to be working into because I feel like I have a world. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I don't have TikTok. I mean, just creating more content on my Instagram page that's more scientific. Um, but LinkedIn cool. is a good place as well because you actually get True. to interact with the people who are actually doing the science because most of the relationships that I have formed have just come from DMing uh, lecturers or other scientists and just saying, appreciating their work and they're like okay um message me on here yeah so i believe like it's it's just a matter of networking these days and actually making the taking the initiative to reach out because most of the times people want to help 
and uh, actually will be interested in helping somebody who's passionate about or interested about the same thing that they're passionate about as well. It was just reminded me that uh, when I was a little kid, I just realized from a young age that scientists were weirdly approachable, even in the olden days when there wasn't <laughs> Instagram. I, I emailed uh, Stephen Hawking when I was a little kid because I was wow. a giant geek. And he didn't get back to me, but his assistant did pretty promptly, too, and even answered my questions. So, you know, it, wow. <laughs> yeah, most I, scientists aren't as famous as him, so they they usually answer their <laughs> own email. Well, I yeah, networking is a word that I'm, I'm going to say still terrifies me because <laughs> it feels like something like, like putting yourself out there is a very scary thing to do. But yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of scientists want to help and actually you're saying I really like you doing this like that's not gonna hurt anyone's feelings like <laughs> they'll probably enjoy the compliment well thank you both for joining me this has been a really really fun discussion thank you <laughs> thank you thank you for having us this is yeah really great <laughs> can I can I can I right. thank you for being here can I, do, can I oh, do yeah, a shout ahead. out to my people at Charles Rivers uh, <laughs> yeah, so I want to give a shout out to my line manager, Bex, uh, Scott, uh, Sarah, Amy, a and Emma, who else? Steven. Uh, thank you guys. Oh, and Neil. Thank you guys for being awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget <laughs> nah, I can't forget Neil. And v Vad for, for hiring me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll do a shout out to Yuha is my life manager is amazing and just has given me so many opportunities also the efez team for making me very welcome when i started but but generally just everyone in the department is just so nice and friendly and and welcoming and um yeah neil would have a hissy fit <laughs> if he didn't get a shout out so <laughs> that's an important one to get in we'll get it in twice <laughs> Well, and I'll just give a shout out in general to, you know, all the teachers, all the role models, all the mentors, all the people that are out there making science accessible for kids and making them realize that they can have a real career at it. We, we really don't deserve you. It's very appreciated. 